My heart was as broken for him as it was for the wife of the man that died. What things led him to this place? And I believe that in every human, no matter how horrible the deed, that there is one morsel of good somewhere. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. You know, if you're talking rock and roll, you could say Tina Turner is a national treasure, and and I would have to agree. If you're talking country, Dolly Parton is a national treasure, and I actually founded a Dolly Parton fan club in high school. I have not yet met her in person, but it's one of my goals. <laughs> we could talk about that. But in the storytelling world, there are rock stars, too, and I have one in the studio today, Kim Whitecamp from Mount Vernon, Ohio. Thank you for speaking with me in good faith. I am happy to be here. You travel all over. This isn't really the reason you're here, but I do want to mention just coming up some of the major places you're going, 10 different states and the Bahamas. That's just major festivals. You that go is lots great. Of- I know. I'm here actually because of Timpanoga Storytelling Institute brought me out to do a week of work in schools and with the college, and it's wonderful. We'll get to some of that storytelling work and how it connects with what we'd like to talk about, which is we were just chatting, and one of the things that came up is, uh, do you believe in God? I do. How far back in your life does that go, hearing about it or actually believing it? Hearing about it goes back to the, f- the first memory I have. Really? I mean, it's, it's ingrained in my family. It's deeply ingrained in my family. I come from an extremely conservative Christian home. The first church experience I remember is the Mennonite church as a little girl. And we weren't Mennonite, but we went there and they allowed it because there wasn't really anything around. It was so rural. Mm. And then the Faith Missionary Church came. And my parents helped build that with their own hands. And that's the church that became our church. So memories from what? From Sunday school? From Sunday school. I even have stories about Sunday school. (laughs) I gave all my teachers a hard time. (laughs) Even the Sunday school teachers who were uh, volunteer retired after they had me in their class. (laughs) But no, I mean, everything. Sunday school. I I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was was second nature, like putting on shoes. I mean, it just was a part of everything. So it was just an assumption. There's a God. And he's involved in in our lives? Period. We all had our own Bibles. We had Bible story books in the bookshelves, big family Bible on the table, in the living room, prayer at every meal. We were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, sometimes even on the weekends for events. My parents served on councils and committees, so sometimes we were there just hanging out while they were doing their thing. Um, When the church was being built that they helped build, they had services actually at a hotel, And my brother and I, I can't remember if we volunteered or my parents volunteered us, but my brother Chris and I would go into the hotel conference room really early. I mean like 6 a.m. on Sunday and clean up the chairs, the trash, empty beer cups. And because we did all the cleaning and the vacuuming and the setup, the hotel did not charge our church. And my brother and I did that by ourselves for I can't even tell you how long. And so when the church was built, we were really happy because we didn't have to go in and clean at 6 a.m. in the morning. So church is just, it was just, I never thought twice about it. It just was what it was. So that's something that lots of us grow up with. It becomes, whether it's a tradition, a habit, whatever. At what point did you make some transition or was there one to questioning or saying, 
is this real? Wow, that's a loaded question. You know, I think the first time there was a snag in the whole setup, when I realized life wasn't the Truman Show, Mm. you know, I think was when I learned some information about my mother that shall remain within the family because she is an extremely proper lady. But when I learned this information, which isn't horrible, but I still, I looked at her and I had looked at her almost like a saint of Mm. sorts. And I thought, wow, she's got a history beyond what I've seen. And there has been glitches in that history. So this is interesting because I thought she was perfect because she just is a very prayerful, godly woman. I tell people all the time, if someone put a gun to my mother's head, <laughs> I'm going to get emotional <laughs> and, and told her to denounce her faith. She'd take the bullet. Mm. I can tell you that with great sincerity. I also believe that I'm here today where I'm at because of my mother's prayers. So with that said, having that kind of thought process about your mother and then learning something, you're like, wow, there's a there's a very human flawed side to this. It's not just Kimmy, tell the truth, or now Kimmy, the right thing to do is. It's much bigger. And I think that was the first time where there was a little snag where I kind of cocked my head and thought, now, wait a minute. You know, these aren't just like these amazing humans in my life that seem perfect running around. These are humans in my life that are imperfect, who are reflecting to me a perfect God. Did that give you more room to allow for yourself to be less than perfect and still be okay with God? Steve, I embraced my imperfection the minute I came out of the womb. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that was not I'm not kidding. I never had a problem with that. I am wide open. People tell me all the time, you're so open on stage. I'm like, honey, I'm open all the time. What do you want to know? I don't hide anything. One, because it's, it's extremely tiring to do so. Two, because I pastored for 23 years. One of my greatest things that I tried to do was show my imperfection in a healthy, authoritative way, if that makes sense, so that people understood that you don't have to be perfect to believe and to love Mm. God. Also, then, there's no pedestal. There's a great danger with pedestals. You could fall off of them. Great danger. People expect way too much, and if you make one wrong move and even wobble that pedestal, they lose faith, and that's very unhealthy. And so I made sure they understood I was right in the pew beside them. And that I did women, worship, and teens. That was my thing as a pastor. But once in a while, they'd let me get up and talk, and I would story tell. And I'd always load it up real heavy with good stuff, you know. They never knew it till they left in the car, and they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Why am I feeling like I need to repent? <laughs> that was a funny story. <laughs> and because of that, and I'm not saying this as a patting myself on the back, but every ministry I was involved in grew unbelievable rates, almost alarming. They couldn't keep up. Sometimes the church would freak out. But people, it was a very safe place. It was a safe place. I always made whatever ministry I was involved in an extremely safe place for people. And they were talking to someone that had been there and maybe not done that, but was never going to judge them. Yeah. Yeah. I think people flock to that authenticity, if that's the right word for it. All you have to do is look at Jesus to know that. So why do we go wrong? Well, I think that there's a real alarm that I see with especially the under 30, because right now they are so open about everything, it seems, but they're not at all. They're looking so hard for authenticity. So they look at church 
and their view of church is mainly headlines and they're mainly negative. So that's a real problem. And I think there's also a move in the church culture. Oh boy. Oh, I hope there's something of people I hope never hear this. Actually, I hope they do. <laughs> I don't really care. But there is a move to be so cool, to make church so accessible, coffee bars in the sanctuary and everything. And there's something to be said about making a comfortable place, a second home, right? But, you know, I can get coffee at Starbucks. I can find my cool stuff socially elsewhere. You know, I want to know that when I'm walking into church that the people are authentic flawed humans that have tapped into something that I don't get anywhere else. And I want the church to feel that way as well, that I have walked into something that this is something I can't find anywhere else. And we're trying so hard, I think, to um, be approachable that I think we're kind of coming down to a level that it doesn't seem any different than anywhere else. Except Hmm. the people are way more screwed up. You know, so I I mean, I'm saying that with tongue in cheek, secularizing church. I have a little bit of an issue with that. So if you look back, kind of pulling this to you personally, to your journey of faith from early days till now, what do you believe or think differently? Or how is your relationship to God different now than maybe it was way back when? Oh, boy. Well, one thing that's really tough for me is I travel anywhere from 10 to 20 days a month. Almost every weekend I'm traveling. Where does church fit into that? I've recently moved, and so I'm trying to find my place again. I loved the church I was involved with before because they knew my schedule, Hmm. and they assigned somebody to me to not assign, but there was a woman who would call me and say, you know, have you been reading your word? How are things going? Are you struggling with anything on the road? There was a lot of artists, musicians there, and that was really nice for me because they got it. Yeah. I wasn't not in church because I didn't want to be there. You know, that's why I tell people when you come across a performer who's on the road, and especially if they even have a bent towards God, really be loving because they can't fellowship. I'm not home. You know, sometimes if I'm home for two weeks, I get excited and think, you know, I'm going to go to this church and then I want to join this historical society and I'm going to help with this building down here. Ain't happening. So how does that fellowship, how does that community help you connect with God? Well, you mentioned that you don't have a chance to fellowship, right. but but, but you like to find a kind of a church home. I have to find one now. I'm still mm-hmm. looking, actually. We moved. Uh, it'll be a year and a half, and I've kind of been you know, piddling around in it and did a little visiting and I'm still just not having found, you know, I get, I get, (laughs) when I walk in and the pastor has his shirt with the angel wings on the back, like a country music star and the cool glasses and the great hair and he's wearing Converse, I kind of get nervous because I think, oh boy, you know, I'm not saying I don't want to judge the man, right? But I think, am I walking into a concert? Is he the star? Because I got a problem with that. Hmm. Uh, it scares me. I've seen that. And But if I'm walking in and there's dust on the pews and the people look like they literally walked out of the mortuary, I'm like, oh, boy. So I'm trying to find that balance between liturgical and comfortable. Hmm. And it is hard to find, you know. My brother's Greek Orthodox. How crazy is that? Where You need to interview him. Where did he go wrong? <laughs> he, he married a little Brethren in Christ girl, was a Brethren in Christ pastor, then a professor, and then went Greek Orthodox. There's an interview. <laughs> okay, we'll put him down. Yeah. <laughs> He's fascinating, actually. But. So if we put you in an empty room 
and we have a table and a chair, some cold water, and a Bible. And we say, Kim, have church. I'm thinking, as a storyteller, is she going to look for a parable, look for a whatever? Well, no. or, or do you have touchstone verses that— You really want to know the first thing I do for real? Yes. I'd shut my eyes mm-hmm. and be silent. And what's happening during that time? Well, first, I, have to, I feel like I have to clear myself out. And then after I feel like I've cleared myself out and I'm in a good spot, and when I mean a good spot, like a quiet place in my brain. I'm talking about my brain and my heart, all those human psyche things. I think the next thing I would do is just clean myself out and just make sure there's nothing in my moral warehouse that needs to come to the table. Because how are you going to hear if your ears are clogged, right? Mm. Your spiritual ears. So the first thing I do is I quiet down, and then I think I would clean out. And then I would talk to him. (laughs) And then I would uh, be shown, I believe very firmly, what I needed to read. I feel I would be led to what I needed to read. And if I didn't get that, I would just open up. That it would come to mind. It would come to mind, or I would think to my, you know, however you want to say, I'm very, very careful to say, well, I heard the Lord say that's... I look at people, I'm like, buddy, you better, that's some big words right there. You better watch what you're saying because either you're wrong and you're putting yourself in a position of hearing that is very dangerous because with that comes a lot of reprimand and responsibility. Or you're right and you're freaking me out. (laughs) (laughs) But that's when I hear people say, well, I heard the Lord tell me. I'm like, oh, buddy, you better be right on that. And I've dealt with real prophets And I know in every denomination that's different, but I'm telling you, I have sat beside men of God, women of God, where there is no doubt they were the mouthpiece of God. I watched it literally happen in front of my face, and it was nothing that they even really were thrilled to embrace. They were honored but not thrilled because it comes with a great responsibility. But if I didn't feel like I was, you know, either something's going to come up that I need to deal with myself, so I kind of am led to the Scripture that way, Or, you know, I just feel like going to the scripture and and waiting to see if something sticks out. And then, you know, I feel like it's translated to help me. How do you feel or do you feel, not just in a moment of meditation or, or personal prayer or silence like that, but as you're going through just your daily walk? And even that, almost because it's in so many songs, sounds like a phrase that is telling me something just as you live your life. Right. Do you feel additional nudges or direction or something that makes you feel like God is working in my life? I might be able to, I could follow this, or I could, or or even, hmm, is that you, God? Yes. Tell me just a little bit about that. You can't see, but he's actually roping me in, I am. literally. Um, oh, boy, now we're getting into some heavy stuff. How much do I tell you? That's the question. Thanks. There is, um, hold on a minute, let me pull myself together. Okay. Part of what makes me a good storyteller, and I don't mean that in a braggadocious way, the bottom line is I know what I'm not good at. Right. And I know what I'm good at. It's part of growing older. I think Mm. after 50, if you don't know what you do well and what you don't do, you're pretty much up a creek. And I hope you get it quick. But I know that I'm good at telling stories 
And I mean, I can stand in front of 100 people or 1,000 or 5,000, and I can read that audience. When I'm sitting with a person, I can read them very well. It's what made me good at my job when I did pastor. Hmm. It's like I have the sixth sense with people. I've actually had times where I have touched a person and held their hand or held their hand to pray with them, and I see things and I know things. And I've spoken those things. Most of the time it's met with anger, and then it ends up in crying and then confession. I cannot explain that. I don't exercise that as much uh, as I used to, but sometimes it presents itself and I have no choice. But when I'm with an audience in a tent, I can see everything. That's a beautiful gift. What kind of responsibility do you... What are you talking to me, Steve? What the heck is this? (laughs) What What is going on? Is this... Is this heaven? Is I getting prepped for entrance? Did I, I die? Is it? <laughs> no, it is a beautiful gift, but I'll tell you something. It comes with a, a lot of uh, pain. Hmm. There's a woman that I was teaching a marriage class, and I held her after class, and I gave her a hug, and I knew she was having an affair. And I said to her, I said, look, I said, I love you, and I know you're having an affair. And I said, you know, if you ever need to talk about it, you can tell me. And she just went off on me. And so I let her. And um, I think it was two weeks later (laughs) on the news. I was finished dinner and I was watching the news. And she was being let off a plane in handcuffs for uh, doing some things she shouldn't have in the plane bathroom with a gentleman who was her boss. Ah. So that you may not want to use. If you do, good for you. (laughs) But I knew it. And so it's, it's, it's a, you can call it a good gift, but it's really tough. It just happened the other day. I gave somebody a warning, and sure enough, two weeks later, there they were. With the, all came to a head. But, you know, it's not, it's not my responsibility. I just tell them what I see when I hug them or whatever. I feel like uh, it's probably way more than you expected, Steve. But... It is what this it is. is. No, this so, is. It's our experience as humans trying to live in a, a spiritual realm that sometimes we we're looking for, and sometimes intrudes on us, uh, whether we want it or not. It's it's part of our experience. Yeah, and so I can honestly tell you that as I walk through every day, I feel the Lord, even when I'm not where I'm supposed to be with Him. I see Him. I feel Him. I mean, and when I say I see Him, like if I'm in the woods at my house, I know. No one can take that. Nobody. I felt his hands on my back when I prayed. No one can take that. And I know the things that he has put on my heart to speak to people, and I've seen them come to fruition. No one can take that. People can take and misconstrue the scripture. They can tell me historically it's inaccurate. I don't care. I've had too many experiences for it to ever be taken away from me, period. So the beauty of having a gift like that is I can stand it and perform in front of a thousand people and know exactly emotionally where I need to take things so they're safe and yet that they walk away with something flowering within their moral warehouse or their thoughts or within their emotional psyche that there'll be some kind of change in their life, hopefully. hopefully. I listened to several of your stories just to refresh my memory. Here's 20 seconds, which is about a report card and a particular teacher. <laughs> Mrs. Ort. Yes. Just that what she wrote mm-hmm. that was so powerful to you, because it was different than all the other yes. d- sort of derogatory oh, comments. Yeah. yeah. The lesson of that 
was hilarious, but is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Have you just changed venues for your ministry yep. and changed 100%. your life is now the text? Yep. I'm not kidding. I now get to blow in, do my storytelling, which is basically in some form preaching, if you want to say that. People don't really know it, but it is. I'm always, there's always, there's always just moral truths. It's just how I roll. And I leave, and then you got to deal with all the problems. <laughs> it's fabulous. Thank you very it's much. It's really wonderful. <laughs> oh, here's yeah. your program, and here's a list of local <laughs> religious authorities if you feel the need to speak with anyone after. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Well, what things in your faith life bring you the most joy? Are they the same things that also kind of touch your heart like this? Worship. Uh-huh. I love worship. I love singing to the Lord. I love singing and hymns I better and mention spirituals. right now that anyone who's hearing this and meeting you for the first time, you do have just a beautiful, beautiful oh, voice. And thanks. usually these stories are told as you're there with a the guitar and you mix the singing. Yeah. When I'm worshiping in a church, I can rarely sing. I'm too emotional. There's something about the lifting of the human voice and praise that overwhelms me to where I can barely join in. I just, but it's probably my favorite thing. It's so beautiful. You know, it has been proven that the waves that our voices make can physically transform our surroundings. It's true. Um, Water can actually be changed molecularly depending on what vibrations are put in it and so forth. You know, I mean, you vibrate something enough, a rock is going to fall apart. And I believe that not just spiritually, but physically, we can change the world through our worship. I really believe that. That does sound joyful. Mm-hmm. When you meet people from so many different places, so many different belief backgrounds, maybe the question is either how do you explain that or do you just embrace all of that? I embrace the human. I mean, look at, at the well with Jesus. You know, it was all love and forgiveness to that woman. And then he spoke truth to her about what he knows that he shouldn't have, but he did. (laughs) And he loved her and then just gave her a positive thing. Just, you know, go and don't do that anymore. Just, you know, she didn't need to be told she was wrong. He didn't say, I know you have a lot of men. He just, he loved her. And uh, I don't push anything on anybody. I don't care who you are or what you believe. I always believe there's a common core of good in every human being. I've had to believe that because of the work I've done. Mm-hmm. Worked with adjudicated youth, at-risk youth, humans. I've worked with humans. Let's just put it that way. If I didn't believe that, everything that I did would be somewhat in vain, fruit and, and futile. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Futile? Thank you. I was going to say fruitless, but the same thing. I had 20 words in my head. And I believe it. I see it everywhere I go. I see the good. Uh, I worked for a police department for two years in between ministry and this, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And there was a young man who acted like he was sick and got out of jail to go to the hospital with a sheriff's department deputy. His brother had loosened a towel bar, and so he took that towel bar and physically assaulted and harmed people and got loose. And he hid and um, shot a police officer. And I remember (laughs) all the police officers were so upset. And I said, you know, I know that we've lost one of our own. But I have to ask myself, what happened to that boy 
to lead him to this, and they were furious with me that I would even give him a glimmer of compassion or a reason. But that's when I realized I needed to not maybe work in mm. this situation. I can't. I can't not do that. My heart was as broken for him as it was for the wife of the man that died. You know, what things led him to this place? And I believe that in every human, no matter how horrible the deed, that there is one morsel of good somewhere. And that's how I approach every human that way. And even if I don't like their belief system, even if they're radically off base in ways, even if they've been violent, unkind, hurtful, no, I really love them. I'm not saying there's maybe been one or two there that really bothered me. Actually, there were people of faith, if you want to know the truth. I have the biggest issue with the people of faith because, uh, you know, it says you're allowed to judge another's fruit, your brother's fruit. It doesn't mean you go around judging people. But if you are in communion with somebody within a faith and you see fruit that is not healthy for them or the people that are around them picking it up, you're allowed to call that out. It's scriptural. I've called it out a couple times and it's maybe not going so well. Hmm. I was right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the people I have the most trouble with. Why do I have trouble with non-believers? I don't care. I'm not going to, I mean, they're non-believers. They don't, they don't, they are not living to the set of rules I've applied to my life. So why am I so upset? And that's one of the things in church I say, everybody's so upset. They get so upset about this and so upset about this book of literature and so upset. And I'm thinking to myself, you're getting upset at people that don't live by your moral code. What, what, what you, you should be getting upset at the people that are living by your moral code who are doing all this garbage over here. And let's love these people who are outside the moral code. I feel better just saying that. <laughs> I'm glad this can also be therapeutic for you. <laughs> Thank you. So. I'll give you 20 bucks when we're done. I think what I want to ask is, is the best words I know how to ask is the recipe of faith. Is it some percentage of ethereal and mysterious to you and some other percentage of just practical and right in front of my eyes? Is there – what's your recipe? Is there – I think you put, it's both. If, if, if some of it wasn't untouchable and ethereal and mysterious, I wouldn't want to believe. Then i just go find some man to follow. I mean, if I can figure out the God I serve, eh, I don't want to. He's God. I really hope there remains some untapped part of God that I can't figure out, you know, because then it would just be a man, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it, it just, I think it's a combination of all of that. I don't know. I just, I find it shocking that people say, well, you know, how do you know it's real? I'm like, dude, just hold your hand in front of your face and look at how that's made. And if you can't believe there's some higher power that's over everything, what is wrong? You know, how can you look into the sky? How can you walk every day and not leave the earth and be held by gravity and not believe there's something? You know, I, I firmly believe, and this is my own theory, please. It's been filtered out, so I'm not saying this is biblical. But I really believe that when God spoke, trillions of mathematical equations went forward trillions, that when he spoke, let there be light, that when he spoke that, he turned the cog for trillions of mathematical equations to make everything we see happen. And he knew that. He didn't need to tell us there's trillion and then list them out. All God has to do is say, let there be light. And I just look around and I'm thinking, how can you not? I just find, I just really find it unfathomable. I don't get it how people cannot just look at the things around them and not realize. And I have a lot of friends in science because I'm a total science geek and neuroscience geek. And they tell me that the higher you go into science, you find more 
believers because they just cannot wrap their head that there can't be a creator. I think that that should be pretty obvious to everybody. I like that witness. That's a good place, I think, for us to kind of land for this conversation. Kim Whitecamp, singer, (laughs) songwriter, preacher, dealer of humanity. (laughs) The Dolly Parton of storytelling. (laughs) Dolly Parton. (laughs) I'll take it. I'm going to quote you on that. Thank you for speaking with me in good faith. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear Kim Whitecamp share a brand new song sung live at the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And we'll listen in on our panel as they discuss the ideas she presented. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. We can't really have Kim Whitecamp on the show and not feature some music, so here she is, guitar in hand, with a live performance of a brand new song from her album Monkey Bars, Middle Age, and Other Natural Disasters. She's singing here at the Theater of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. It's Sugar and Spice. I've been told that I'm made of sugar and spice Everything sweet and everything nice But I know there's more to my DNA Oh, and I feel it every day I am the love in my mother and father's eyes I am the fire that holds the stars in the sky what I'm made of and more That's what I'm made of and more I am the sweat upon my daddy's brow I am the hand on granddaddy's plow I am the flower grown by my mother's hand I am a child of the in spiritual gifts? If so, do you know what yours are or how to use them? And considering your own imperfections, do you think there's still a morsel of good in even the worst person? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. 
Marcus Smith has worked in radio for 20 years, but is far more likely to boast of the intensive composting operation he conducts in his backyard suburban garden. Anne Bigelow is a kindergarten teacher, adjunct college instructor, and mother of five. Andy Bay is a writer and researcher who digs road trips, the blues, poetry, Portugal, and Indian food. Maria Cavicol is a homemaker, writer, and editor. Diet Coke and chocolate keep her happy. I've heard Kim perform in the past, but this was completely different because she was talking about things so deeply personal to her, about spiritual life, religion, God. And it was so striking to me that these things are clearly meaningful to her, and yet she interlaced the entire thing with jocularity and humor and good wit. And I couldn't help but think how many times I've done that in my own life where it's almost as though these things are so precious that you feel vulnerable and you kind of have to obliterate the chance that somebody will hear what is most meaningful to you. And so you obscure it sometimes. It's maybe sacred, uh, but I know that I have a habit of doing that where I could stick with the serious subject matter, but I often bail out. I don't think she was bailing out, but you know what I'm talking about, Andy? It sounds like when she was talking about being in a place of silence, um, I was reminded of reading in St. Augustine's Confessions when I was just a young college kid. And the kind of transformation that happened when you are sort of unafraid of just being completely still and meeting God, in a sense, in that place. And and he was afraid of it because he, like he said, he didn't want to be transformed just yet because he was enjoying his life as a sinner. <laughs> and I think in some ways we do fear transformation when we are fully present with whatever sort of higher power we are trying to connect to. Um, and, and maybe that's why we, we try and move away from that in some way. I don't know, but in my, in my life it has been sometimes that case. It's almost like it's too real. On the other hand, I don't know that spirituality and humor are mutually exclusive. Um, to me, a truly spiritual person is full of life and personality. And I think oftentimes we consider that to be spiritual you have to be serious, but really true spirituality, the true nature of man is full of personality, full of life. And that's how she she was. So that's what she demonstrated is just a full range of emotion and personality. I thought as well that she talked a lot about being authentic. And I think that there are different authentic parts of ourselves. And so oftentimes we are in one station looking at things one way and in a different station looking at things a different way. But they kind of mesh together. And like you said, it's it's our way of dealing with it so we don't get too drawn into it, that we don't get that transformation like Andy was saying. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned this authenticity thing because she's a real performer on stage and funny. And we can do that at a party too. I'll go to a party and I'll have fun, right? But when I go to church, uh, if it's a little bit too casual, then I'm, I'm kind of like her. She said that she doesn't want to see the performer on the stage. Mm-hmm. She's looking for a place where 
it's um, a different reality from what happens when you're out in the secular realm. And I, I know what that's like because um, there are times when I go to church when I am looking for that silence or that connection is what people call it these days. When you're really hungry for something deeply meaningful with God and sometimes the stage isn't just right and it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. You know, I was just at my uncle's funeral this past weekend. And, um, you know, it was a solemn affair punctuated by about 200 very funny stories about my uncle's life. And so, I, yeah, I would agree with Maria um, that there's not any kind of conflict. In fact, that's something that we can all understand because really when, when we look at the humor of someone's life, right, um, we see our own foibles and we sort of see how in some ways pathetic we all are and perhaps come to understand why we look to higher things to, to hold us in place in some ways because the things we do are quite, quite ludicrous if we look at them objectively. <laughs> you just used the word foible, and she went right to that when she talked about her mother, that yeah. the real crisis, the snag, she called it the snag that she hit that made her question where she was in life with her faith, was that she discovered something about someone who had fallen off a pedestal. Mm-hmm. That was probably one of the most important moments of the whole interview because it comes right down to this question of when do people feel that they've lost their faith, either in humanity or in all of their presuppositions? That's why I thought it was very poignant that she points out that she embraces people's um, humanity. She embraces that within herself, her imperfection, because when you do have someone on a pedestal, it's very disappointing and can disrupt your faith. If, if you do have faith in that person and they fall. So for her mother, you know, to find out something about her mother that was upsetting um, was a real test of faith, but yet she looked to her mother's character and who she was now. And she was so impressed that it was, I, I love how she said, it's because of my mother's prayer and her prayers throughout her entire life that she is where she is. So she could see the discrepancy between her her mother's maybe early mistakes or foibles and who she became as a devout Christian woman. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I had a similar experience with my own father, who some of you may may know, and he presented himself in such a way that you would never know kind of what was on the other side. Oftentimes he was very abrupt or he was very stern, but he was the most kind-hearted man inside. And that really resonated with me when she was talking about the goodness of every soul. Because we all have those experiences where people misinterpret who we are or what we stand for. But if we can go to that inner soul that each of us has or that that makes us tick, that's what really makes the difference in the way that we present ourselves. I was very interested in her phrase, the church as a safe place. And 
I thought of childhood, I can still remember the Naga Hyde pews that were padded in the church I went to as a kid and what it was like to have a nap there in a long church service. But looking at the ceiling and, and, and just the architecture, but then the people I knew as a child, they knew who I was or I, as a kid. I mean, I'm talking to them like you're four, five, six, seven years of age. And the faces of those people, they're some of the most important people in my life. I may not have seen them for years, and many of them are deceased and gone. Uh, but to feel like when I went to church, I was not rejected. When I went to church as a child, I was welcomed and loved. That's the way I remember it. And especially as a child, you are so authentic. You don't know to put on a different um, personality. Instead, you are truly yourself. And the other day, I ran into someone who I grew up with in my church congregation as I was growing up. And he said, I, when I saw you and your siblings, I could remember every one of your names. And I remember being your Sunday school teacher at one point and this and that. And what I felt then was just a love and acceptance of me, who I was as an individual, as a child growing up. And she had tremendous um, feelings about worship and the importance of worship in her life, the importance of attending church. And I thought that was a beautiful thing as I look back on my own experiences. But this is not to say it's all Pollyannish in that because she said that she gave her Sunday school teachers a hard time. So There's did some, I. There was we some, had four yeah. quit in a year in our class. <laughs> well, all of that wrangling is uh, kind of a microcosm of real life. You go to Sunday school and you don't escape the world. All of our pettiness comes with us. You know, it's, it's uh, interesting that as she talks about, you know, the transition from faith as a habit to a more aware and engaged kind of faith and where she, you know, understood her mother to have had, to have been a different person in the past than she was as she grew older and, and saw her in, in the present. Um, it's interesting that we, we often have struggles in our faith relative to or vis-a-vis the people that are around us. We might see hypocrisy in some form, and we expect often the people around us to be, like she said, a reflection of God, a perfect God, but being imperfect themselves. I just found that very interesting. I put people on pedestals when I was a kid. Every child does. I think part of growing up, that when the scales fall from your eyes, like with her mother, it's when somebody really lets you down, somebody who was you thought you had every right to their being better than they were. It could be a teacher. It could be a parent. It could be a big brother. It could be a neighbor down the street. It could be anybody. And I remember uh, agonizing. Uh, this is even before I became a teenager. And usually teenagers become rebellious. I was a good little kid. I didn't cause trouble. But I was put up to something by a school teacher that was illegal. And the teacher was in a position of authority. And I carried out this illegal thing that's still so embarrassing to me that I don't want to say, well, I'll just go ahead and say it. I put a bomb threat at Herbie Hest on my junior high school. And that was way before the age of terrorism. That was before Osama bin Laden. In those days, it could just be considered a prank, you know? And it was because a teacher at the junior high said, oh, this would be a fun trick. Why don't we do this? I had to, I had to do it. She was a grown-up. I had to do it. It's still one of the most humiliating and at the same time instructive 
um, episodes in my life to think back and how did that happen? And how could I be so let down by a grown-up, you know? It hurts even when I think about it. Um, so, so then I have to say, well, is there anything about that teacher that reflects a perfect God? There's a story, and I've had the privilege of, of meeting Kim Whitecamp before, and I've heard many of her stories. And perhaps the reason she emphasizes how careful we must be about judging others and finding the good in others has to do with her own father, who was a very tough, harsh father in many ways, did not show the kids any affection. And she tells a story about how in 30 seconds, he told a story about his life in which um, he related how his father had died when he was very young and he was a, a boy who then had to run the farm, take care of five sisters and his mother and worked, left school in sixth grade and never was able to do anything but just work hard his whole life. And he had never had any affection shown him. He just didn't know how. But learning this transformed her in, in a powerful way. And she realized at that point that telling stories is, um, is a kind of a calling, being a storyteller, because the power of a story to change someone's life is just immeasurable. And she related how how by hearing this story, her attitude to her father changed, and she began loving him more purely, and he softened in a remarkable way. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible story. If I were to relate that to what happened to me, the teacher never took it out on me. She almost lost her job. She was berated for hours in the principal's office for, a, it was a terrible infraction on her part. And in retrospect, as a grown-up, I can say, she did a godly thing by not um, taking it out on me. She owned it. It was her mistake, and she knew it. She was gracious and kind all the way through the rest of the school year to me. I even got a good grade, you know? And so I guess I can process it that way. You're listening to A Conversation in Good Faith, a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Kim Whitecamp. Um, going back to the the father thing, my my father again had this aura about him that later on in his life, some things came out that the family found not unlike what she mentioned about her mother that were quite shocking, to be honest. And at the time, it was extremely um, disheartening because here's your father who's your hero, and you you look to him for everything. But in retrospect, it has been one of the best things that has drawn our family closer together. It has helped us learn from the mistakes that he made and the things that he did. And just recently, um, I have a son who turned 18, and my husband and I sat him down and talked to him about some of these things that had transpired with my father. And he was in shock, to say the least, but he was also again, very much looking to that godly person of him because he could see the way that he had made changes and the way that those changes had dramatically affected our entire family. So your 18-year-old boy, was this a kind of experience for him of growing up, 
Definitely. He was like, oh, wow, if this could happen to my grandpa and if he could change in this way, it's very much impacted him. And he's since moved away. And now he writes letters to me and says, you know, when I'm talking to people, I'm able to share experiences about what happened with grandpa. And I'm able to take that in my belief in God and to share that with others so that they can realize that we are all imperfect humans and that we are are learning to relate to one another on whatever level we can, but that we need to have that authenticity to be able to to relate to others. So to me, the two takeaways from this conversation is First of all, is that we need to have faith that have it centered in God, that we do need to have faith in people as well and believe in their potential, but to have faith that is centered in, in God, um, knowing that he is perfect, that all of us are imperfect. And then secondly, that um, each of us has a story, and that's probably why she's become a storyteller. And in some cases, you know, she talks about people's pasts, and she said in in a few instances, you know, I wonder what brought them to this point? What is it that uh, has happened in their life that's brought them to this? And so if we give people the benefit of the doubt, if we're compassionate and kind and realize that God is perfect, that we are all imperfect, then that gives us some perspective and meaning. I love Steve's question near the end to her what things in your faith bring you the most joy? If faith isn't about joy, why pursue it? You know, I have – there have been times when I have just longed for there to be joy because of my religion. And like her, I think it's come in worship. I Man, if there were anything I could change in either my life or the life of people around me, it would be that when we worship, it's not about getting together to compare ideas – it's sometimes just singing praise. I still remember once on a Christmas Eve singing um, Away in a Manger and hitting a line and choking up so bad that I thought this is embarrassing and this isn't like me. But for one moment in my life, I wasn't self-conscious. I just kept singing and crying at the same time. And I got through the line. You know, I, Yeah, I choked up, but I, I, I felt like it didn't matter what I looked like or what people might think. Um, it was, you know, be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. I can't think of uh, a line in any hymn or scripture that uh, gets at the, the right, at the, at the heart of my religion quite like that. It's just a plea for God to be with us. And so I wasn't really singing lines I was making the plea while in the act of praise, and it all converged into a moment of honesty. And so, yeah, that question was just, what things in your faith bring you the most joy? Well, and I really liked the fact that she she was who she was. She allowed herself to cry. She allowed herself to be bubbly and, and funny. And interestingly— um, oh, Do you mean in the course of the interview she yeah, allowed herself to— Yeah, in the course of the interview. Yeah. And um, interestingly, I didn't realize it until about halfway through the interview, but just a couple of weeks ago, she came to my school and presented at my school. And we fell in love with her. 
because she's that vibrant type of personality that she shows that. And so I love that question, too. What is your most, you know, the joy? Where do you find the most joy? And she said that she loved it in singing. And she sang stories to us. And it was just phenomenal how she related to the kids, how she related to the adults. She loves life. And that that espouses that joy. I love the, the quote by Robert Louis Stevenson. He says, for to miss the joy is to miss all. Don't you love that? To miss the joy is to miss all. And I was just with my grandson. He lives in New York City. And we go across the street to play at the park. And to see him so joyful, laughing and smiling and running around, it just made me think of that phrase, to miss the joy is to miss all. And a child can embrace that joy so beautifully. And oftentimes as as adults, we become too serious and we need to embrace that joy and that happiness because that is the fruit of the spirit is joy. And that comes from God. Maria, don't you think that as an adult – the experience of joy can even be more intense than when you're a child. Because with a child's innocence, you don't know what's at stake. You don't know how wrong things can go. And once you've had tragedy, deep tragedy in your life, if you find your road leading you somehow miraculously back to a point of real joy, then it's joy in spite of the pain or in the face of the pain rather than just and I don't mean to diminish what you're, you, it's like to be with a grandchild yeah. at, at yeah. a swing set. That matters too. I've got a five-year-old and she's just innocent and naive and she doesn't get it. She can't. She's too small. You know? Yeah. Now, I'm thinking of another saying, the depth of our understanding is the depth of our gratitude. That the more we understand as we grow older and as we mature, the deeper we are grateful, the more content we are the more we understand what life is about. So you're absolutely right. But I do think that you know joy is represented in children so right. easily and so naturally. And um, But it is a, a deeper joy as we have that depth of well, understanding. Every one of us here at the table have lost near and dear ones. Every one of us. Uh, we're old enough to qualify as sufferers, you know, and yet we're still in pursuit of joy, at least I am. Yeah. Well, and I think that goes back to another big takeaway that I had from what she said when she was talking about um, how God works in her life and how that she fills him and that every day she said that I see the Lord, I fill him, and no one can take that from me. I loved when she said that because it, it just espoused the fact that she has such a faith that it doesn't care. She doesn't care what you say or what you say, Andy or Maria. It, it's mine. I own it. I know it. And no matter how much you convince me to not believe that, it is my joy. I got the sense from her that she was talking empirically. She wasn't just saying, I'm stubborn and I'm going to stick with my point of view. Mm-mm. She was saying, I've had experiences in life that I can't refute. Yes. She expressed her, I think, her faith as... It wasn't just the fruit of doing good, but she'd had experiences with with God that led her to believe in God and to um, be able to, in a sense, witness for um, uh, that God she believes in. 
She also talked about her gifts. She was she's given what she described as a gift of discernment, where she can discern a person's nature. She can discern the feeling, the emotional energy in a group as she presents, and that that is a gift that helps her professionally as well as spiritually. Um, and I think we've all been given gifts that as we get older, we start recognizing what those gifts are. She said, you know, if you're 50 and you don't know what you're good at and what you're not good at, then you're really missing the boat. And that's true, that we, as we grow older, we do recognize what gifts God has given us and what we maybe are not blessed with. So, Maria, since you're not yet 50, you don't know what your gifts are, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'm just discovering them now. (laughs) She knows herself well. She is a person who knows what she's about and um and i think part of her her love of worship and singing is because she knows that she loves to sing and she allows herself to simply be who she is and and express herself in those modes that she knows belong to her that are her gifts Here's something Kim Whitecamp said in this interview with Steve that is lingering in my memory. She's willing to, I mean, it's a real humble gesture to say that when God spoke the words, let there be light, that it wasn't just a magic wand and one trick. It was a massive array of mathematical equations is the way she put it. or, or A trillion. A, tr- a trillion. Uh, it, it boggles the mind on the one hand. But what she's inviting me to do when I hear her talk like that, she's inviting me to be humble in the face of a creation that is so vast that I'm not going to be able to understand it with my mortal puny brain. And that kind of humility, I think, is incredibly impressive. Well, and she talked about that as her recipe for faith, that she has to believe that God is mysterious and ethereal because otherwise he's just a man. And so I think that it helps us feel that humility and to realize and understand that there is so much more to God than there is to us, and yet we have part of God in each of us. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, and especially to Kim Whitecamp for generously sharing her stories, her music, and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime via email at ingoodfaith@byu.edu. Find our shows archived online for listening or sharing with a friend at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon right here in good faith. <laughs>